So we're going to stand up for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 4, we're going to start verse 3. It says that Jesus left Judea, and he departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. That's noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and this well is very deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me some of this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, well, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I I, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Well, just then the disciples came back, and they marveled that Jesus was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to all the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town, and they were coming to him. Now look down at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of this woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, Jesus departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. This is God's word. You guys can have a seat. Um, 
One of my favorite TV shows is um, a classic New York show, and that is Seinfeld. And one of my favorite episodes of Seinfeld is the one where Kramer gets a speaking role in a Woody Allen movie. Anybody remember this episode? And he has one and only one line in this movie. Does anybody remember what line it is? These pretzels are making me thirsty. So Kramer's in a Woody Allen movie, and he's got this one line. These pretzels are making me thirsty. And all throughout the episode, you have Kramer and George and Jerry and Elaine trying to help Kramer get that line just right and how to say it. I'm partial to George's, the way George did it, because it had like an anger behind it, you know, very uh, typical of George. Uh, But if you were to spend a day in my apartment, Pretzels are a pretty common snack in my home, and Seinfeld is a pretty popular television show in my home. So if you were in my apartment on a regular day, you might hear Rebecca or me shout from the other room, these pretzels are making me thirsty. You know, we're always doing that bit. It's funny. We're quoting Seinfeld, but here's the truth. Pretzels actually do make you thirsty because they're covered in salt. It's all bread, they dry your mouth out. When you fill your mouth, when you fill your stomach with pretzels, you will indeed get thirsty. And in our passage today, Jesus says that we often fill our souls with all kinds of things that make us thirsty for something more. (laughs) And Jesus says that the thing that our soul longs for more than anything in the world is living water. And living water is a metaphor that Jesus uses to speak of eternal life, to speak of joy that he gives, fulfillment, the life that comes through knowing God through Christ. That is living water. And all throughout the Bible, there's this image that comes up all the time, this idea that the way our souls long for the grace and the mercy and the salvation and the life of God. Psalm 42 says, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul thirsts for you, O God. Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. My soul thirsts for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. In Matthew 5, verse 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus himself says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. Jesus, in today's conversation with this Samaritan woman at a well, which, by the way, is the longest single conversation Jesus has with anybody in the Gospels. In today's conversation with the woman at the well, Jesus is saying that our souls are thirsty for something and that we try to fill our souls with all kinds of things, but only one thing can actually satisfy those deep, deep longings of our soul, and that is God himself. Now, there are three things that I want us to know about the living water that Jesus offers that we see from this passage. The first thing is that living water is available to everyone. You know, last week we studied the encounter that Jesus had with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And if you remember, Nicodemus was a powerful man. He was on the inside, I mean, he was in the inner circle. He was a religious man, a wealthy man, came from a good family. He was a very moral man. He was one of those guys that didn't really have any scandalous failures in his life. He had been pretty good. He had walked the straight and narrow in his life, so to speak. And you would think that Jesus would say, way to go, Nicodemus, you're awesome. But what does Jesus say to him? He says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, your success, your morality, your religion, your heritage, your ethnicity, None of that qualifies you 
makes you more qualified for the grace of God. You must receive salvation just like everyone else. But in today's passage, instead of speaking to someone on the inside, Jesus speaks to someone who's marginalized, the woman at the well. And essentially, his message to her is the opposite of what it was to Nicodemus, but still yet the same. He says to her, your failure, your lack of success, your family, your ethnicity, all of those things that are strikes against you in the culture that you live in, those things do not disqualify you from the grace of God. The grace of God is available to you just like everyone else. So Jesus in these two stories back to back says, nobody is, it, nobody is qualified for God's salvation because of how great they are. It must be received freely as a gift, but he also says no one is disqualified from the grace of God because of how bad they've been. The grace of God is available to all on equal terms. We are all sinners in need of his grace, but yet he offers it to all of us. And so this story begins today. Jesus is leaving Judea and he's headed toward Galilee. And verse says, verse four says that he has to pass through Samaria. And so the direct route, if you look at one of the maps in the back of your Bible, the direct route from Judea to Galilee took you straight through Samaria. But most Jews in that day and time, when they traveled this journey, they actually would walk several miles out of the way so that they would avoid Samaria. So even though Samaria was directly on the route, they would go out of their way, even though it took longer, so that they didn't have to pass through Samaria. It's kind of like, we're New Yorkers. It's, if you've got a meeting somewhere on Broadway, and it's around in the 40s, you know, I know I'm not the only one who's ever done this, where you go, you get off at 42nd Street, you've got a meeting on 47th, and you go, you know what, I'm going to walk over to 8th Avenue and then walk up because I'm going to avoid Broadway, I'm going to avoid Times Square at all costs. Why? Because there's tourists there. Have you guys been lately? It's actually not too bad right now. It's kind of empty and creepy. But any New Yorker, any real New Yorker is like, yeah, I try to avoid Times Square as much as I can unless I'm going to a play or something. In the same way, a first century Jew would have avoided Samaria, not because of tourists, but because of Samaritans. Because in Samaria, Samaritans were there. And Jews and Samaritans were not fond of each other. In fact, there was a great deal of tension, prejudice, and just honest hatred toward one another. I mean, this woman in verse 9, it says she was so shocked that Jesus even asked for a drink of water. She said, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, to understand why this is, centuries earlier, when the Jews were exiled in Babylon, you know, they were there for quite a while. And so some of the Jews, what they did was, over time, they started intermarrying with the Canaanites. And it formed a new tribe called the Samaritans. But these Samaritans, they were half Jew, half Canaanite. And so what they did in these marriages and in this culture is they took parts of the Jewish religion and they took parts of the pagan religions, the Canaanite religions, and blended them together and made this one like blend of syncretistic religion. And Jews, of course, they considered this to be just, I mean, heretical and the worst possible thing. I mean, they just thought it was just so offensive. And the Samaritans even had their own temple, which the Jews actually destroyed. So they created the tension even more. And so the, you had the, they had, the Samaritans had their own culture, they had their own beliefs, they had their own practices, their ethnicity was different because they are now uh, intermarrying uh, and all of this, and they were looked down upon as completely inferior. And likewise, they thought the Jews were completely just, they couldn't stand them either. They were ethnically different, they were culturally different, they were politically different, they were religiously different. They were 
different, and they did not like each other. And Jesus, go, he doesn't go the long way around. He goes straight through Samaria and goes right to this woman. And it's not only that this woman is a Samaritan, but also that she's a woman. I mean, this was a big deal. Jewish men, especially men of authority, rabbis like Jesus, would never speak to a woman publicly that wasn't family. And so this woman, she was a Samaritan. She was a woman. Jesus is like upsetting all these like normal, these, these codes of conduct. He's in Samaria. He's speaking to a woman. And not only was she a Samaritan, not only was she was a woman, but from what we can gather in some way, she was immoral. Or at the very least, she was marginalized. Uh, perhaps, you know, it We know that she was marginalized because even among her own people, because she's going to the well at the sixth hour. This is noon. Now, if you some of some of you have been to is the Holy Land with uh, we've been to the Holy Land before, and it can get hot in the middle of the day. And no one, none of the women in that time would have gone to to get water in the middle of the day. Would have been too hot. They would have gone early in the morning or late in the afternoon. And so the fact that this woman is going to the well at the sixth hour, which is noon, means that she was going at a time when she wouldn't be harassed and harangued by the, by the women around her. So we know right here that she was, for some reason, she was marginalized. And we'll get to that in a moment. She was an outcast. But the point right now is this. Jesus, he is laser focused on finding this woman and offering her living water. And he is so focused on bringing his grace and his mercy to this woman that he crosses ethnic, cultural, religious, gender, and moral barriers to have a drink with this woman. And here's what this, verse 7 says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. She said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? So here's what this means for you. This means that there is nothing about who you are that disqualifies you from the love of God. I don't care who you are, what you have brought into this room or what you're bringing into this live stream, whatever is in your past or in your present, none of that disqualifies you from the grace and the mercy and the love of God. You may come from an unimpressive family. You may, that does not disqualify you from the love of God. You may come from a marginalized group or ethnicity. People may think things about you. They may say things about you, but none of that affects the way that God, the God who created you sees you. You are not disqualified from the love of Jesus, no matter who you are, how you were born, what you've done, who your family is, whatever. The love of God is extended to you. Because God loves you. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, what other people say about you. Jesus wants to extend his love, his welcome, his friendship, and his salvation to you. Full stop. That's good news, right? That's what it means for you. Here's what it means for others. Your neighbor, the one who is loud upstairs... Your neighbor, the one who believes different things than you. Your neighbor, the one who behaves differently than you. Your neighbor, the one whose culture is different from you. Your neighbor, the one whose food smells different than yours. The one, your neighbor, the one whose skin color is different than yours. Your neighbor is just as deserving of the grace of God as you are. 
we can look at this relationship with Jews, between Jews and Samaritans, and we think, my gosh, how primitive. But think about this. There are some of you in this room that in your lifetimes, water fountains were segregated. Buses were segregated. Schools were segregated. Even today, I mean, for people, my, we're segregated along all sorts of lines and barriers. You know, several studies have shown that one of the leading causes of political polarization today, and we, we all agree, right, there's political polarization. I mean, we just hate each other, don't we? One of the leading causes for, uh, of the political polarization that we see in America today is that statistically, most people have very few, if any, friendships with people who have different political beliefs than them. And so what happens then, what that means is that we, in our culture, we are literally self-segregating from people who believe and vote differently from us. And that causes us to become more suspicious of other people. It causes us to think the worst about each other. It causes us to fear each other, to avoid each other. And it causes us to overlook the sins of our tribe and to shine spotlights on the sins of the other people's tribe. And when we feel these things and when we think these way about people who vote differently than us, there is, how in the world are we going to offer the living water of Jesus to someone whom we're afraid and suspicious of? We live also in a neighborhood that has a very large Arab Muslim population. And my wife and I, we've made a lot of friends in this neighborhood. And it always baffles me when they seem surprised that we bring cookies to their apartment. Or that we, you know, we get to know people in our neighborhood. And they say, very few people who look like you have extended genuine friendship to people like me. A few years ago, one of my friends preached at our church, and he mentioned that one out of every eight, one out of every eight New Yorkers lives in public housing. And he made a, a statement that convicted me that day. He said, if you do not know anyone who lives in public housing, then your friend circle is too small. Here's my point. Whether we realize it or not, we often self-segregate from other people who are different from us, whether it be politically, ethnically, culturally, religiously, socioeconomically. Sometimes we do it not even knowing that we do it, just out of comfort. Other times, though, we do it out of pure fear and prejudice. But if we are followers of Jesus then we've got to follow Jesus, don't we? And what does Jesus do? He goes through Samaria. That means he goes across your building. He goes across your block. He goes over to Fifth Avenue. If we truly believe that Jesus offers living water and that he is the hope of the world, yet we are unwilling to cross social and cultural barriers to know and love our neighbors so that they can know and love Jesus, then let's be honest, we're not following Jesus completely. See, living water is offered to everyone. That means it is for you. Praise God for that. We sing, we celebrate that, that the living water of Christ has been offered to us and our lives have been renewed and restored. We love that. Let's raise our hands and sing about that. But it also means that the living water of Jesus is for your neighbor as well. No one is disqualified or unworthy of the grace of Jesus. Second thing we see in this passage is that living water satisfies the deepest thirsts of our soul. Jesus tells this woman, 
He says, hey, look, anybody, he says, you can drop your bucket into the well, pull it out, drink that water. It's good water. It's well water. It's probably cold, clean. It's going to quench your thirst, but anyone who drinks of the water in that well, you're going to have to come back again tomorrow at the same time because you're going to get thirsty again. But anyone who drinks of the living water, the salvation, the life that I offer, Jesus says, you'll never be thirsty again. And this woman says, oh, I want this living water. And you're thinking, like, Jesus, you're like, now's the time to close the deal. And you say, like, all right, give her the living water. But Jesus says, okay, well, call your husband. And I imagine this moment, this woman's head just hung in shame. I wanted the living water. And now he asked me about this part of me that I was trying to hide. He says, she says to Jesus, she says, you know, I, I don't have a husband. He says, yeah, I know that. You have five husbands. You've had five husbands, and the guy that you're shacking up with right now, you're not married to. Now, a lot of people read this, and they assume that this woman must have been an adulteress or some kind of sexually promiscuous woman. And it's likely that this is the case, but the text doesn't actually tell us that. It only says that she's had five husbands. And the one thing about divorce in first century Jewish or first century Palestinian culture that we need to understand is that it, divorce at that time could only be initiated by the husband. So this isn't a woman who's just like throwing out no fault divorces, like I want to leave you. This is a woman who has been told five times by five different men, "I don't want you anymore." That can take a toll on how you view yourself, can't it? And so now, she's not even bothering with marriage. She's given up. Five times, I think, this woman, five times she's had a wedding day. And perhaps on those wedding days, she thought, you know, hey, last time I went into it thinking that this was the one, but I was let down. But this time, this time, I'm going to be loved. This time, I'm going to make it work. This time, I'm not going to do that thing that caused him to not want me last time. This time, I'm going to be fulfilled. This is the one. Only to be let down again and again and again. Happy Valentine's Day, by the way. Thirsty. These marriages were leaving her thirsty for something more. They didn't quench that longing in her soul for fulfillment that she hoped that they would. And Jesus says, drink what I offer, and you'll never be thirsty again. Now, how could Jesus say this? Okay, we like that. Jesus says, living water, never thirst again. Amen, let's write a song about it and let's sing it. But what does that really mean? Like, how could Jesus say this? How can knowing Jesus actually quench the thirst of our souls? You see, in this passage, I think one of the, the, the keys to understanding this passage is to notice how slowly this woman realizes who Jesus is before the penny kind of drops for her. It starts out, she says, how can you, a Jew, offer me water? She calls him a Jew. He's just another, he's a Jewish guy. And then later she says, oh, okay, I, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Okay, so she's, she's, she's thinking he's a little more. And then she says, could this be the Christ? And then she runs into town and tells everybody. And they come back, and after seeing him, they confirm what she already thought. And they says, this is the Savior of the world. You see, when this woman recognized who, remember how she's skeptical. 
the whole way. She's like, Jesus, what are you talking about? Water? What you, you know, uh, uh, living water? I, I, what are you talking about? But when she recognized who Jesus was, you're the Christ? The penny dropped for her, and she runs into town, and her soul began to overflow with excitement because she was recognizing that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, had purposefully sought her out to have a drink with her. He risked shame to meet her. Like Jesus risked shame to go have a drink with this woman, to meet her, to know her, and he knew everything about her. She said, come and see the man who told me all I ever did. That is actually terrifying to me. For someone to know everything I've ever done, why would that be good news? I mean, like there are so many parts of my life that I want to hide from everyone. And she's like, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Why would that be good news to her? Because she said, here is a man who, saw, who, who sees everything I've ever done. He sees into the very worst parts of me, and yet he still says, I'm giving you living water. You know how scared we are of being fully vulnerable? Because we're afraid that if people in our lives see us for who we really are, that they'll run away. Jesus sees her fully for who she is, and he doesn't run away. He comes in closer, and it's the same for you and for me. And for someone who... Uh, He doesn't heap shame on her like everyone else does. He offers new life to her. And for someone who has been marginalized for most of her, of most of her adult life, this is a woman who, have been, who has been told five times, I don't want you in my life any longer because of something about you that I don't like. Jesus says, I know everything about you, yet I love you, yet I fully accept you. I offer life to you. I want a relationship with you. I want friendship with you, and one, a friendship with you that lasts into eternity. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Do you imagine how sweet those words were to, to the ears of a woman who's been divorced five times? That's good news to this woman. Now, what would it be like for you and for me to be fully known like that and yet fully loved like that? See, I'm convinced that everything we do in our lives is sprinkled with a desire for us to be accepted, to be recognized, to be welcomed, and to be loved like this. It's why we work so hard, isn't it? We strive so hard because our souls are thirsty for someone, whether it's our boss, whether it's the people around us, whether it is just the public, whether it is, even if it's our own, uh, our own hearts to just say, I'm satisfied with you. You've done enough. We strive and we strive and we strive because we so badly want somebody to say, I see you and I accept you. And only in Jesus can this level of acceptance be fully realized. Because only Jesus can see you all the way and yet still offer you all of his love and all of his welcome and all of his acceptance and all of eternal life. Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I give them will never be thirsty again. A life with God is a life in which you are fully known and fully loved and therefore fully at rest and therefore fully satisfied. St. Augustine said, O oh Lord, you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. Final point, Jesus became thirsty so that we could never thirst 
again. Now, how does Jesus accomplish eternal life, forgiveness of sins? How does he accomplish this for us? In this passage, we actually see something very important about Jesus, and that is that we see his humanity. In this passage, we see that Jesus gets tired. He's tired from traveling. It says he's weary, and he sat down, and he wanted a drink. This is a God who created all things, who now puts on human form, comes to earth, and submits himself to a human body that can get tired and can get thirsty. Jesus, who is eternal, who is the creator of all things, looks down on humanity, his most prized possession, and he sees that without him we are thirsty. And so he humbles himself. He becomes a man. He becomes thirsty like us so that he can know our pain, so that he can sympathize with us. And did you know that on the cross, one of the final things he said before he died was, I'm thirsty. You know, Jesus was breaking all sorts of laws just by talking to this Samaritan woman. But the most shocking thing he does in this passage was asking her for a drink. Because you can, he could explain away why he was talking to her. If somebody said, whoa, whoa, Jesus, what are you doing? Oh, I just happened to be here. She was here. I was just, I'm, it was a quick conversation trying to get away. But you can't explain away. The, he could not explain away that he asked her for a drink. Because the very moment he took a cup from her and he put his lips on that cup, that would have made him unclean in the eyes of the law. Her sinfulness, her impurity would have been transferred to him in the eyes of the law the moment he took a drink of that cup. <clears throat> and what happens in this story is he takes her cup, he puts it to his lips, he takes on her uncleanliness, and he trades her and he gives her a cup of living water. You see, this is exactly what happened on the cross. Jesus said before the cross, he said, let this cup pass from me. What's the cup? The cup is the sin of the world, yours and mine, was being going to be transferred onto him. He was going to become unclean because of your sin and because of mine. And he was going to drink the cup of God's wrath toward our sin. <coughs> but in return, he would extend to us the cup of eternal life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake... God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Octavius Winslow, listen to this, this is beautiful. Christ took your cup of grief, your cup of the curse, and he pressed it to his lips, and he drank it to the dregs, and then he filled it up with his sweet, pardoning, sympathizing love, and he gave it back for you to drink and to drink forever living water. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Don't you want that eternal life? Let me pray for you. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that you have taken our cup of sin and shame and you have drank it. You've emptied that cup and you filled that cup with living water, with eternal life, with full acceptance, with grace and mercy and truth, and you've given it back to us to drink and to drink forever. So God, we thank you. And I pray that if anyone here has never tasted that living water, the scripture says that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord 
and that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And so God, I pray that anyone watching online or anyone here today, if they would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be given a cup of living water, a cup that will never run dry. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.